Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember, oh yes, I'm sure you remember, but again, remember to rate the show five stars and give it a follow if you haven't already. And I'm sure at this point you can say the next part with me, but it may not seem like a lot to you, but it really does mean a lot to me. Now, special thank you to Jamie and Ernesto and Chris for the donation since last episode. Really can't express how much it means. Last time, though, we got to the retrospectively titled Last Powerful Emperor of the Han Dynasty. And where we are now, the rebellion of all rebellions is about to come. And while it is technically beaten eventually... It may be the prime definition of a Pyrrhic victory for the Han Dynasty. As Commodus burns Rome and kicks off the slow-moving collapse of the Roman Empire, Emperor Ling, who is hardly as insane as Commodus, will see that happen himself in his own domain. The Han have been slipping for a while, I've done nothing but tell you that, and like most things between the two, China will indeed have it first. They always have it first when it comes to them in Rome, except in this case, it is collapsing, which isn't always the best. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 61, The Yellow Turban Rebellion. The people have had more or less... Enough of this for a while. For the last near century, the Qing were rebelling on and off. The Xiyu area was in and out of Han control. Throughout the whole dynasty, it seems, discontentment was rising. However, the Han still held enough control during those times to put these uprisings all down individually. The victories seemed straightforward, but as we have seen, the rebellions have only gotten worse. One pops up, it's put down, but eventually another one pops up and it's slightly worse. And every time that happens, the Han control of it all is getting weaker and weaker and, well, weaker. By the year 180, things had reached somewhat of a boiling point and the fire underneath was having kerosene poured onto it. I.e., the boil, therefore, was only getting worse, too. Bad analogy of the episode dealt with, we turn our attention to a man named Zhang Jue. Zhang Jue was born in the classic year of, oh, of course, we have no idea. He died, though, with names such as General of Heaven, so his birth year clearly was not the most important part about him. You can't go around with a name like General of Heaven without doing a couple great things in your life. Where he was born, though, is known, as he was born in modern-day Hebei in the Julu Commandery. Oldest of three boys, Zhang Jue joined with his brothers, Zhang Bao and Zhang Liang, in his soon-to-be-launched rebellion. It is, in this case, a family affair. The rebellion, to preface, 
is a mix of totally rational political anger and some ancient world insanity. Insanity is harsh, but you'll see what I mean in a second. At the time, it's not that wild, but to us, it is. The situation, as we know, in the Han, given the plagues, the famine, the corruption, the natural disasters, the floods, it was all dire. And all of that led to the three brothers, led by Zhang Jue, to determine, quite understandably so, that the dynasty had maybe lost the mandate of heaven. Hmm, definitely not maybe. It had lost the mandate of heaven. The brothers were all devout Taoists, but like humans always seem to do every now and again, they believed that the end was nigh. However, their difference was more governmental. Remember, this isn't Europe in the medieval times, where people often assumed that God was going to start rapture here and now, 1534, and only those in Munster who could change their ways would escape eternal hell and damnation. No, there's no rapture. As we all know by now, that was not how the ancient Chinese rolled. Like we mentioned many episodes ago about philosophy and religion, such views were intertwined. So, of course, this apocalypse was for one thing only. And that one thing only was the government. The emperor had ruled through the divine mandate of heaven. We know that. And again, get your Western religion view of heaven out of your head. This is not the heaven like you or I might know it in the West. Instead, it's really just the closest direct word to translate the original meaning. It is not the pearly gates up there for them. Anyway, the emperor had ruled through the divine mandate of heaven. And with all of this, coupled with the fact it was the beginning of the new sexagenary cycle, a timekeeping methodology at the time, involving yellow skies marking new governance, I'm sure you could lead yourself to believe what inspired the yellow turbans that these rebels would soon start dawning. Yes, it's a direct relation to that. At their founding core, Zhang Jue and his confidants and his brothers were followers of the Way of Supreme Peace a borderline shamanistic take on core Taoist beliefs. For his part, Zhang Jue had, according to himself, by the way, called himself the Great Teacher and was in possession of the Taiping Yao Shu, or the Crucial Keys to the Way of Peace. That book, again, according to Zhang Jue, had been given to him personally, by the deity Huang Lao. Look, I'm not saying I doubt this guy's story, but, you know, proclaiming to be given physical items by deities is always an iffy one for me. Though, maybe it's just me. Maybe he's telling the truth. But with his own group slogan set as, quote, The azure sky is already dead. The yellow sky will soon rise, end quote. By 184, the brothers began creating under-the-table alliances, 
around the dynasty, and importantly, inside the palace through proxies. Not all officials were bad. Not all eunuchs were bad, mind you. Like most rebellions, though, find out, keeping a secret is hard. Really hard. So, alas, the plan was to kick off the whole thing on April 3rd, but a disgruntled and sidelined member of the Way of Peace spilled the beans. Didn't like the fact that he wasn't getting attention in the planning, and decided that, you know what, I'm done, I'm telling the Emperor. He spilled the beans too late, though, and with what they had, the Yellow Turbans launched the whole thing albeit early and not fully ready. Better to happen at all than to be dismembered to death like those who were caught still planning the rebellion in the capital when the beans were in fact spilled. Yes, those who were caught in the capital were dismembered to death. This is, though, what may confuse you all. Bear with me. Zhang Jue launches a rebellion across the dynasty with some 350,000 followers, all rocking the yellow turbans in March of 184. Now, mind you, these are closer to bandanas than the turbans you may have immediately thought of out of the Sikh faith. These were yellow bandanas, headscarves. Anywho. With that all, though, Zhang Jue dubs himself the Lord General of Heaven because, obviously, knowing Zhang Jue's penchant for titles and names with flair, it's not that far of a stretch to see what kind of person he may have been. Regardless, though, even with his healing powers or all the other things he said, he wasn't selfish with names. His brothers, for example, were Lord General of Earth, and Lord General of the People, respectively. Maybe smartly, or maybe because they didn't have the plans in order, in time, to make a direct move, the brothers instead turned their forces onto villages, and snapped up control of commanderies, mainly in the Yu, Jing, and Ji provinces, in modern-day northern China. They clearly did something right with that, though. Because people began to see what was happening, and the rebellion began to pick up more and more steam. And it was picking up steam quickly. Even without the internet or any semblance of instant communication, within two weeks, the yellow turban problem had become something the dynasty really hadn't seen in a while, if ever. The emperor quickly sends out his best generals, and unlike short localized rebellions, the Han imperial armies actually had to put their full back into this one. These weren't just some farmers in the Qing state given a little rabble. These rebels had real numbers and were well-armed and dug themselves in to the commanderies that they had seized. They were guarded, armed, and numerous. That is not exactly an ideal cocktail for a healthy dynasty. But you might be asking yourself, wait a minute. The Han has been in a bloody and out-of-touch-with-the-starving-people court drama for the last who-knows-how-long. 
How in the world did the armies of the Han get their act together under competent leadership that did not defect themselves? Well, thank you for asking, because the Han dynasty and their army did not have their act together. Not when you can have warlords and militia generals around the empire help you put down this diffuse rebellion. They can do all the heavy lifting for you. But look, I doubt giving any sliver of authority to warlords and localized militia leaders will have any adverse effects for the Han. And in all the legitimate and probably illegitimate promotions from these half-warlords, half-governors, half-militia leaders, and half-Han generals, there was one Tal Tal, who, just to show you that the end is near, will have the end of the Eastern Han for some reason land on about the time he dies. I wonder if he will be important. Poor sarcasm and foreshadowing aside, Zhang Jue and his brothers never ended up getting a real shot at storming the capital and, in turn, restoring the mandate of heaven. I know. I know. I can hear you saying it in your car or in your living room or at the gym. Eric, come on. You have been hyping this rebellion up. What do you mean they never got a real shot at storming the palace? Well, because by October of the same year, 184, Zhang Jue is dead. And soon after, the rest of his brothers are too. Being a rebellion and all, leadership and intricate discipline was obviously lacking for the yellow turbans. The Han military was still well-organized and an effective force, and they, in the end, with the help of localized militia leaders and warlords, methodically took back what the rebels had taken. They had to fight for it, mind you. It wasn't easy. But like playing a little sibling in a game of sports, it was inevitable that victory would be achieved. And by mid-February... Emperor Ling had issued a proclamation that changed his era's name from Guanghe to Zhongpin, which pretty much means that he was saying pacification was achieved. Hmm. Okay, I can hear you really screaming now. You are saying, what? What was the point of all of this? All of this buildup. To have them, what, dead within six months? The emperor is proclaiming pacification achieved? Eric, the Han is fine. What do you mean this brings the whole empire down? The, the dynasty's gonna end soon. You keep hyping up this rebellion. What do you mean? It is not safe, though. The dynasty was not healthy. But bear with me here. Because... The Han Dynasty had essentially killed patient zero of a pandemic outbreak and declared victory. But dormant was the fact that hundreds of thousands, if not millions, still roamed the dynasty with rebellion on their mind. Land reform didn't happen, and the Eastern Han had clearly lost the mandate of heaven, and they hadn't gotten it back. That much had not changed, and it was only going to get worse. 
Because the valiant effort of the original rebels, the Zhang brothers, showed that with some changes in planning or execution, pulling it off was actually within the realm of possibility. They lost, but it's clear that they could have maybe done better. And now, by the way, you've just armed a bunch of warlords. So, in the words of Julius Caesar, the die is cast. The Han Imperial Court just doesn't know it yet. Soon, warlords and generals will get more and more emboldened, while the Han becomes less and less capable of dealing with it all. Soon enough, won't be able to deal with it at all. I wonder what could go wrong. Ironically, the Julius Caesar quote is somewhat apt here because, well, we are finally at a place where many characters, well into adulthood in this point of our story, will die in a different dynastic period. Caesar, for his part, promised land reforms and famously did not disband his army, which was loyal to him, not the state of Rome. And guess what? Figures like Cao Cao also did not disband their army after they put down the Yellow Turban Rebellion. And it was figures like Cao Cao and others that brought down the dynasty in the end and ushered in a new age for China. Knowing the Han was a golden age, might lead you to believe something like, well, whatever happens next can't be as prosperous. And if you believe that, you are absolutely right. The Han is a golden age, and what comes next is not. The fun was over for the Han dynasty. But nothing is ever set in stone. However, after the fury of the Yellow Turbans was put down in 184 and 185, Emperor Ling seemingly learned nothing. Could he have done much? No, he couldn't have. The eunuchs still were corrupted and the government was run terribly. Watching what ended up swelling to be a rebellion of over one million people did not convince anyone in the palace that maybe it was high time to dumb down on the whole exploitation thing. I don't know. Clearly people are pissed. Maybe we should, you know, keep it on the down low for a little bit. No, that's not what they said. Instead, a palace fire led to construction ideas from Emperor Ling that sound a lot like, well, Nero, who just over 130 years earlier had himself used a fire as a great moment to decide to build one heck of a palace. Yeah, Emperor Ling raised taxes and tried to build a giant palace. That doesn't look good to the people. And to put into perspective how dire things had become, given that taxes were still being ratcheted up to points higher than they had been at a point that caused a giant rebellion... An honest official overseeing a commandery complained, quote, and his quote's great because it shows the true ridiculous state of the Han government. Anyway, the honest official, the governor of a commandery said, quote, I should be like a parent to the common people. 
but I had been forced to exploit them to satisfy the emperor's needs. I can't bear to do this. End quote. He might not have been able to bear to do it, but he was not permitted to resign. He wrote out his grievances and those of the people and subsequently killed himself. He must have written pretty eloquently, though, given that Emperor Ling actually paused the taxes intended for the palace construction for a short while. He instituted them back eventually. And I'm not talking just fixing what happened in the fire. I'm talking palaces with four large bronze statues, giant bronze bells, four of them too, and water-spouting animal sculptures. Those kind of things, from statues to bells to sculptures, cost a lot of money. And with Emperor Ling minting new coins to boot, he was only allowing more resentment from the people to creep in. They have truly lost touch with any semblance of reality. Though, who needs to worry about the people when you can just offload that power and responsibility of control to provincial leaders? Oh, that is slowly, by the way, becoming a formal way to describe warlords. Provincial leader, warlord, it's about to all blend together. Because by 188, Emperor Ling began to jack up the military power and authority of anyone who was selected to be a provincial governor. However, that was about all the mess one man could create. And in 189, Emperor Ling died from probably what was a stroke. Wait, no, I'm wrong. There was actually a bit more of a mess he created. Before he died, and believing that it was in his son's best interest if they wanted to reach at least adolescence, that they should be raised outside of the capital. He had two sons. And even though the histories seemed to indicate that he was leaning heavily towards naming a crown prince, he flinched and died without naming one, thus leaving two children at the whims of power-hungry officials. Back the right one, you rule the Han. Yeah, obviously Emperor Ling had to make one last mess even from the grave. Emperor Ling would die truly the last powerful emperor of the Han dynasty. His successor ended up being Liu Bian, someone backed by the now Empress Dowager He, Emperor Ling's empress. Of more consequence, though, is the fact that her brother ended up holding most of the sway as a regent ruler. And given he was the leader of the imperial army and was very tight with a lot of the warlords, things would only go downhill from here. No other true emperor would end up ruling in their own right, corrupt officials or not, in the Han Dynasty. Emperor Ling would be the last. So, Liu Bian becomes Emperor Shao, and himself would die, along with his successor, as mere puppets of warlords and generals. Emperor Shao it is, and his regent, by the way, the ruler of the army, and the one who happens to be tight with warlords, 
hates eunuchs, and loves warlords. Yeah, this is going to be a fun next episode. The bitter end for the Han was here, and they had dug this grave, and now they were about to be buried in it. Next time, the end of the Han Dynasty. This is a period rife with confusion, and it's interesting because, just like Mike Duncan said, the Han do not go out with a bang. As you've heard by now from the last couple episodes, they're going out with a whimper. The golden age of Chinese art, philosophy, government strategy, everything was about to come to an end. And in its place will come the very bloody Three Kingdoms period. So, buckle up. The warlords are in town, the emperors are out, and finally, after what seems like years, well, it has been years, we are leaving the Han Dynasty behind. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and please, Rate the show five stars, check out the website, and ooh, if you so feel inclined, donate. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China. <laughs>